It's good. Okay. Okay, I want to start with a question to you all. Where on earth um, do you feel the most at home? Yeah. Where do you, which city or, you know, some people have, <laughs> yeah, Sam is saying my mom's place. <laughs> okay, shout out some more places where you feel the most at home. Goa, okay. Your home in Pune. Okay, yes. <laughs> Colin is saying Emerald. Emerald, if you do not know, is the church office. <laughs> Dubai, yes. Okay, what else? Sorry? Hyderabad, yeah. I'm from Hyderabad, but I, I feel more at home here. To be more specific, my, my house and a specific spot in the sofa. You know, when I come back from work and just sink into the sofa, there's actually a big dent in the sofa from me sitting there. <laughs> and I just sit there and I relax, and that for me feels home. Another thing is, you know, when I eat the pickles that my mom sends from home and I have that with hot rice and ghee and raw onions and, uh, you know, clarified butter, that's, for me, that feels like home. But this concept of home, the writer of the Hebrews uh, talks about this hall of faith, all these amazing men and women of faith who have gone before us. What they felt was home was this. This is what they felt. They said, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Paul says it this way. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. The Bible tells us that heaven, in fact, his presence, his values, his kingdom is our true home. Our, our true citizenship, if you are a believer in Jesus, is in heaven. Now, when you travel to different places, you try to replicate what it feels like to be at home, right? So if you're, if you're here, you want the smells of your home, the uh, foods of your home, and that makes you feel a little more settled. And for us as Christians, that is exactly our mandate, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. The kingdom of heaven, our true home, how do we usher it in and steward it and champion it in our day-to-day -day lives here and now? We are to be in the world but not of it, right? In the coming weeks, we are going to look at some stories of different people in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is the shadow. It, things that have happened naturally in the Old Testament are a prophecy and a shadow of things that happen spiritually in to, today's day and age. So we're going to see some stories of people who stewarded and championed the kingdom of God in their time while they were in exile. Yeah? Today, we're going to be looking at the life of a young girl who was orphaned very early and she was being raised up by her cousin. Any guesses? Esther, that's very good. This side was totally silent and this side had all the answers. Okay, it's not a competition, but... <laughs> okay, it's totally a competition. Um, so we are in the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is very peculiar because it's one of only two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned. There's no mention of the name of God, the work of God. There is no mention of God. Isn't that crazy? It is in the Bible. 
And as we move through our life sometimes, especially in a country like this where Christians are in a huge minority, it can feel like that. We are, there's no mention of God or there's no honoring of God as God. Yeah. How in this kind of a situation do we see the hand of God? You know, where even though God's name is not mentioned, as we will see in the book of Esther, his hand is manifest. And the way that he manifests himself in this book is providence. The suddenlies, yeah? Suddenly, the king couldn't sleep. The sleepless nights, the favor. Where is this favor coming from? To the people of God. So we see the hand of God through providence. This is a story of a young girl who prevented a genocide. Isn't that huge? One person, or maybe in partnership with two other people, saving an, a nation, an empire, from genocide. And I believe that this book can give us prophetic strategy for how we are to learn and live our lives here in this time in our country when we are confronted with injustices in our schools, our offices, workplaces, colleges, yeah, how do we respond? How do we steward the kingdom of God? How can we be salt and light in hostile environments? And that is what we are going to look at today. Shall we pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through your word, Lord, we pray that you'd give us our daily bread for today. I pray that, you would, that your word would become flesh in us. I pray that as we look at these stories, this would not just be stories informing our mind, but that your spirit would start your work in our hearts. I pray even before I start speaking that you would start speaking, Lord. And I pray that you would create and prepare good soil for the seed of your word to fall upon. And I pray that we would see much fruit from this. I pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon me as I bring these words. And I pray for the work of your Spirit in each one of us as we ponder these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, let me give you a quick, you know, soap opera version of this book if you've not read the book of Esther before. And... What we're going to do is we'll, we'll stop right where I want to land and then we'll talk about it a little, okay? So this book starts in Persia in 400-something BC. And Persia at this time was a kingdom that was very powerful and the emperor of Persia, Xerxes or Ahasuerus as we will see, was a narcissistic king who who uh, surrounded himself with wicked advisors who were only seeking for what can benefit them out of this king. One day, he is showing off his empire and the riches to all his friends, and he's throwing a party. And this party is like no other party, okay? You college-going kids, you have no idea. This is a seven-day rager where they are getting drunk and they are celebrating the riches and the opulence of the Persian Empire. And at the end of this, the 
King was not satisfied. He wanted to take it a notch higher, and he wanted to show everybody how beautiful his wife is, because he had the most beautiful woman as his wife, and he wanted to show her off. And when he calls for her, his wife Vashti says no to this degrading request. So he gets pissed, and he says to Vashti, "Get out of here!" He throws her. He divorces her. Throws her out of the uh, palace. And the next day, when he starts missing her, her ad his advisors say, "Hey, you're the king of Persia. Why don't you just throw a beauty contest? Pick your favorite. You know, just just do that. You don't have to go back and apologize to Ashti. You don't have to reconcile things. You are the king, man." And he likes the idea. So there is a beauty contest. So we get the the context of the culture in which this these things are taking place. Yeah, and. Then enters Mordecai. Mordecai, with his main character energy, this guy is like so, uh, you know, um, confident. Like right from the beginning, you see this confidence, and he enrolls his cousin daughter, okay, the one he was raising up, Esther, or a translation for that is star. He knew, he knew his cousin daughter was going to be a star, and he enrolls her in this beauty contest. The Bible even tells us that she was beautiful to look at. She had a good figure. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it gives us details about how beautiful she is. This is no, you know, best-looking girl in the class contest. This is Persia's top model. Okay, and they were, um, and she. Is enrolled in that amongst all of the other beautiful women. Esther stands out. Can you imagine? And then it says that she stands out and she wins the favor of this eunuch, who was the um, you know the, the top guy in the entire beauty contest. He was running the things. And here I want to just pause for a second and say, favor is a manifestation of God's goodness. Favor in our lives. When you think, why, why did I get selected for this promotion? Why do I get to go and travel to these places? Why do I get to do these things? Favor is a manifestation of God's goodness, but also, favor is God setting us up for something. Because there is a responsibility that comes with that. But let's not go ahead of ourselves. This chief eunuch gives Esther for this period of time the best cosmetics and food for a whole year. So she is like eating the best food, and she's getting spa treatments. I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like the best year ever. Okay, imagine eating—I don't know—caviar or <laughs> prawns, or all the Goan food <laughs> that you can think of, and getting spa treatments and all of this stuff. At the end of that, she's presented to the king, and the king is bowled over by her beauty. And then he makes her queen. This is the best-case scenario. Mordecai and Esther have hacked the system. They could not have hoped for a better ending for the story. But sadly, and very realistically, the story doesn't end over there. Then there is a twist in the story, like in any good, you know,、um, Indian drama series. <laughs> There is a twist in the story, and enter Haman. Haman. A little history about this man is that he is from this um, um, this group of people called as the Amalekites. The Amalekites have been hunting 
Israelites all through the centuries, from Moses' time onwards, they've been, the Jews have been hunted all over the place by the Amalekites, you know. So if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that, you know, Jews have destroyed the Amalekites, the Amalekites have destroyed the Jews, and all of these kinds of things. But this plays a role in his hatred for Jewish people. Now, if possible, Haman is even more narcissistic and egomaniacal than the king even. He goes onto the streets declaring his glory and Mordecai refuses to bow down to him because Mordecai remembers that, you know, the Torah, that my God is the only God, I shall bow to no other God or man. So he refuses to bow. And there are consequences for that. Do some of you feel like that in your day-to-day -day lives here? That when you obey God and you know what is right and you choose to do what is right, that there are consequences for that? I don't know about you, but I have uh, faced consequences of, for expressing my faith. When I first came to Jesus, um, I was pretty bold and also naive and I told all my friends that, hey, I'm a Christian, I've, I've discovered this Jesus and I feel like I've come alive and uh, within the next two weeks I didn't realize, but because I was so in love with Jesus, I was caught up with him and I didn't realize that all of my friends were gone. There were no invitations to go for parties anymore, there was no, you know, uh, let's hang out here or do that or do this. There are consequences to following Jesus and the same thing happens to Mordecai when he refuses to bow down to Haman and Haman says, um, uh, he actually takes it upon himself to not just destroy Mordecai but all of the Jews in Persia. Now he gets an edict that is a law, he gets a law passed to kill all the Jews, he gets the funds, he gets the signet ring of the king that is the authority of the king, and so things seem hopeless at this time. This is where our life as Christians become, becomes real, when we stand up for God, refuse to do as instructed by society because it's, it would be disobeying God. And you know, when we look at the news and when we look at uh, it being made compulsory to read religious texts in our schools or, or desecrating of places of worship, we, are, we think, well, what is this? I thought this was a secular country. What, what are we, uh, you know, what's happening? And when this happens, generally, there are two responses that we see. There's either a revolt or there is receding. And these two were exactly the responses of Mordecai and Esther. Let's turn to Esther 4.1. In Esther 4.1, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai was, was revolting. He was saying, this is not fair. He was crying out in the public square. And let's look at Esther's reaction. Esther 4.4, 4, when she finds this out, that Mordecai is doing this, she says, when, the, uh, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. She was mortified. What is this? This, this uh, cousin of mine, he's making a big scene against the law that was passed by the king. If the king comes to know, he'll have my head. 
And in all honesty, all of us fall somewhere in that spectrum. Yeah? Maybe our urge is, you know, let's sign a petition, let's get onto the streets, let's, you know, do something against this government, or let's just keep quiet. All we can do is pray. What can we do? And throw up our hands in the air. But I believe that there is another way. In Luke 1, Zechariah prophesies. If you remember last time we spoke about uh, the prophet Zechariah, the priest Zechariah, and he prophesies saying that Jesus came to guide our feet into the path of peace. Jesus came to guide our feet into the path of peace. I think between a revolt and being, you know, receding or shrinking back, that there is a path of peace that is available for us. And that is what we're going to spend the rest of our time today talking about. And I think this is a very practical message. We are not really exegeting a passage of scripture or something, but I believe that there is a prophetic wisdom for us in these passages. Yeah. The first thing, so I have four, four Ps for peace, okay, for the path of peace. So I have four Ps. First is partnership. Partnership, okay. Partnership across ages, cultures, locations, denominations. Esther 4, 13 and 14. Mordecai sends word to Esther, educating her about, hey, Stop shrinking back, stop hiding in your castle and hear about what's happening in the land. Mordecai sends a word to Esther and uh, tells her about everything that is happening and he sends it with a challenge. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom. This is a uh, famous phrase for such a time as this. Who knows if you and I have not come to Pune for such a time as this. Yeah? And the challenge arises because Esther is listening to Mordecai. Now, Mordecai and Esther are two different generations because, you know, Mordecai was much older, which is why he took her on as a daughter. And um, they are from they are two different genders. And right now, they are in two different social statuses. But is what's, what's happening here is not just relationship, it's not just friendship, but it is partnership. And I want to emphasize on the need for us at this time, more than ever before, to step out of our comfort zones to partner with people who are unlike us. I believe that we are being called as a people to unite on things that make us one. Mordecai does three things over here. He educates Esther, he shares his burden, and he challenges her. My question to all of us is, are we in circles where these things are happening to us in partnership with one another? Are we being educated about what's happening in this world? Are we, being, uh, are we sharing the burdens of others? Are we um, being challenged to do something about what's happening? Do we have partnerships like that in our life? Do we have partnerships like that in the church? Now, I, 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 I love 
the youth meetings and you know we are having the ladies chill out this afternoon and i love that and and it's so good to find people with you know similar ideas and all these guys are going to play football later and you know all of those things are so valuable and precious to find unity but i think beyond that i want to make a statement that word of grace is not a young people's church it's not an old people's church it's not an indian's church it's not a foreigner's church it is not a andhra church it is not a kerala church it is the church of god where we need all people the young and the old because you know what the holy spirit when it fell on pentecost it fell on the young and the old it fell on the men and the women the masters and the slaves the jew and the greek and for the manifold wisdom of god to be displayed on this earth we need each one to participate we need each one to participate so while we are we have friends with whom we have a lot of things in common with can i urge you and challenge you today to step out of our comfort zones maybe find some unlikely pairings unlikely friendships yeah when i first started uh, hanging out with nawaz i remember a lot of people saying what is this relationship i don't understand you guys are you know uh, you you not of the same age but you hang out you go on walks every day what's happening but this was partnership and i know that this was a kingdom partnership because the fruit of that that we see today so i want to urge you to find and reach out to people that that might make you uncomfortable even outside of these you know four walls i wonder if modukai would not say to us today don't think that in your cushy job and attending church on sundays in a cosmopolitan city that you can escape any more than the pastors who are being beaten up in some of these cities and arrested and chased in our country If you keep silent at this time if you shrink back relief and deliverance will come to the Christians in India from another place but you would have missed out on something and who knows whether we have not been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this the second thing is prayer partnership and prayer Let's look at Esther verse uh, Esther 4 verse 16 Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf do not eat or drink for 3 days night or day I and my young women will also fast as you do then I will go to the king though it's against the law and if I perish I perish Wow These are heavy things to say and to mean it prayer is partnership with god i know it only says fast but in the jewish tradition when you fasted you would pray alongside yeah so um prayer is partnership with god and prayer and fasting are some of the most potent yet underused weapons in the arsenal of a kingdom agent you remember last week nawaz so beautifully brought out the fact that we are actually agents for the kingdom we are agents uh, of of renewal we are objects of renewal and we are agents of renewal yeah so as the agents like she said you know 007 as the agents of the kingdom we have weapons and 
Prayer and fasting is one of the most powerful weapons. And the purpose of prayer and fasting is not to arm twist God and say, God, if you don't give me, until you don't give me this, I'm not going to let go of you. No, actually what's happening in prayer and fasting is you're saying, God, I'm, I'm going to stop being preoccupied with all of these other things. And actually I'm going to give myself to your service. Here I am. Okay, if it is food that is, that is taking up my time, setting it apart for a time, if it is you know, anything else that in, our, in our lives that we need, we say, we're setting it apart for a time and saying, God, we want to partner with you. I'm available for your purpose. Because no matter how well we strategize or how you know, well we uh, organize ourselves, we cannot do what only God can do. Yeah? We cannot change people's hearts. We cannot you know, do so much of what the kingdom requires because God calls us to do the impossible. I want us to think about fasting like you know, a bow and arrow, fasting in prayer. If you think about an arrow as a prayer, there's only so far that you can flung, fling an arrow and it'll go. But if you have a bow along with it, uh, ask Andrew, there are a lot of pigeons that know exactly what happens when you aim a bow and an arrow <laughs> towards it. Yeah, a fast, Fasting is like a bow to the arrow of our prayers. I remember when... Um, it's, it's always difficult for me to talk about this, even though it's not my story, but when um, Sam was having Ralphie and we got news about the fact that he was in a difficult place. I remember that was, I think, the last time we had this 24 by 7 prayer chain. And we said, day and night, Lord, we're just going to pray and intercede and ask for this boy's life. And... Um, I remember I was in a hostel, so I could not pray in my room, so I could went out into the terrace and I would just be weeping and praying. And I think it was a few days later when we heard that news, it wasn't just that Sam and Sunit had a child, it was all of our victory. All of us rejoiced like, hey, I was a part of this. My prayers were answered. And I believe that there is so much power that is still to be released, that is shut up in us, that is yet to be released if we give ourselves to fasting and prayer. One thing that we can do to immediately put this into action is there is a call to pray once every month. Um, so I want to urge each one of us, let's, let's fill up Colin's living room like there's no space to breathe, okay? Let us all come. Let us pray together. Let us fast and say, God... We know the times that we are living in and we are willing to put away all other distractions and call on you. Would you come and heal our land? Do you want to do that? Yeah? Let's do that. Let's, because that's required. That is the call of the hour. Because there are things that we cannot strategize and do that even our best strategy and our best plans will not accomplish in this kingdom. It happens through prayer. The third thing is posture. Just a reminder, everybody who's hunching down, can we sit up straight? <laughs> posture. Okay. What are we talking about? Let's read Esther 5, verse 1 and 2. After the praying and fasting, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room. 
And it goes on to say that, you know, how Esther approached the king and he held out the golden scepter, which meant that she could come before him. And she approached him. She, uh, and then the king was pleased with her and asked her, what do you want? And all she said was, I want to serve you. Will you come to my banquet? I want to cook for you. I want to serve you, my king. The second time he asks, what do you want? Up to a half of my kingdom I will give you. What do you want, my queen? And she says, I want to serve you. Bring whoever you want. Maybe this guy, Haman, that seems to be around you a lot. Bring him. <laughs> I just want to serve you. And I believe that irreverence and disrespect will not win peace. There is no way that our disrespectful talk amongst ourselves or out there about the government, about the political parties, about what's happening in our schools and colleges and workplaces, our disrespect is not going to win peace. In 1 Peter 2, 17 and 18, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor Honor the emperor. And it goes on to make this even clearer. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust. Do we have unjust people in places of power today? Yes. But what is our response? What does God ask us to do? Respect. Honor. Now, this is different from people-pleasing, okay? People-pleasing is where it is for our sake. We, we please people to, so that we can get something out of it. I struggle with this a lot. And honestly, I'm nobody to be telling you anything because God has so convicted me over the past few months about how people-pleasing is such hypocrisy. Because I, I, I face this especially with you know, my uh, authority at work and things like that, where I know they're unjust, but I struggle to find it in my heart to honor them. And people-pleasing is for what I can get out of them, even if it's just approval, even if it's just favor. People-pleasing is for what I can get out of them, but honor is because we want to honor their position. Esther honors the king. Our position of honor exhibits our trust in God, because in all of this, there is one king to whom we owe our absolute loyalty, and we always, we, we honor our emperors, bosses, and everything in obedience to the king. So that is very important, the posture of our heart in all of this. Let us not become bitter because of the laws that are being passed or the atrocities that are happening, the injustice that is taking place. It's difficult, but let's keep ourselves from becoming bitter the fourth is the, is the clincher, and it is participation. The fourth P towards peace is participation. Peace is not just, you know, not doing anything about it. It's not desisting from action. Peace is actually participation. Uh, in Esther 7, 3 to 6, Esther starts speaking. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted for me, for, f granted me for my wish and my people for my request. 
For, I ha for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent because our if affliction is not comparable with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. You see things changing, but before that, before this, Esther could have lost her life, you realize, for, for even saying anything against his right-hand man. Esther could have lost her life, but what this also meant was she had to expose herself. You know, think about this. If you're attending a Zoom meeting, yeah, what is the difference between the persons attending it and participating? Generally, the people who are participating, unless you have some internet issues or something, you switch on your video, you switch on your mic, and you are seen, you are heard. Okay? That is the difference between participation and attending. Yeah? And when we gather like this together, we are called to participate. This, this whole thing, this is not a performance. This is not, I mean, though we, we are hoping that you're blessed with everything, you know, the worship and the word and everything. But this is participation. Each one of us are participants to this. But what happens in participating in anything that's going on in society is that we risk exposure. Until this point in the story, Esther had not revealed that she was a Jew. They were a minority. They were being persecuted. They were a slave community. So she did not expose that she was a Jew. How many of us find it difficult to, you know, be ourselves, our Christian selves in our workplaces and things like that. I definitely do because I know there is a stigma attached to it. But Esther exposes herself, herself in, in this and she risks losing her life. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says, Everything that I go through, all the beatings and the lashings and the suffering that I go through is for this. This is the reason, this is the purpose, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We are called to participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you are a believer of Jesus this morning, we are called to participate in his sufferings. What are some of the practical things that come to your mind that, that you're saying, I can do this in my sphere of influence? Because all of us have it. All of us have some sphere of influence. And participation means that we, in some level, expose ourselves. We risk being seen. We risk vulnerability. Maybe start with your neighborhood, your family, your classrooms, your workspaces, your society building. Yeah? We need to participate in the sufferings of Christ because there is a great reward for this risk. There is a great reward for this risk. Let's look at what happens to Haman. 
In Esther 9, 24-25, it says, For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Hooray! This was a complete... Uh, you know, turning on its head. It was a complete reversal of fate because these gallows were meant for Mordecai and all the Jews who were supposed to be hung. And in an instant, the king gives this command, actually, Haman is going to hang in those gallows. The book of Esther was really a turning point for the Jews who were in exile. A people who were once hiding and did not disclose who they were became strong and destroyed all the enemies in their land. And in fact, what it goes on to say in later uh, chapters is that many who were Persians had actually believed the Jews and believed in the God of the Jews. Okay, there was evangelism that was taking place. People were coming to God because of the acts of one generation. And watch this, it was not just for them, it was Haman and their, his sons. Okay, so the steps of faith and boldness and obedience that were taken by one generation had an impact on generations to come. Many years later, there would be another man who left the glory of heaven and exiled himself to a lowly place on earth with a target on his back from the moment he was born. He was chased to be killed as soon as he was born. But he lived a blameless life, growing in favor with God and with man, partnering with fishermen and tax collectors, frequently getting away to pray to his heavenly father in a posture of a humble servant, obedient to God, to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was a man, Jesus Christ. And in a reversal of fate, on the third day after being buried, rose up again, bringing the death that was meant for him upon the devil and the sin and death itself. The cross that meant death for him became life to us. You see the paradox. Today, we are called into that life. And if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, this is an invitation for you. His death became our life. And today we are being called into partnership with him. Because how we handle our influence in this generation is going to determine whether the, the atrocities that are happening in our country are going to perpetuate to yet another generation or are we going to put a stop to that. As we partner with those outside of our comfort zones, as we give ourselves to pray and fast, as we, um, as we pursue his will in everything that we do in our lives, as we participate in the sufferings of Christ. The harvest is plenty and the reward is great, but we need to put our hands to the plow. This is a call for action. Yeah. 
And the reward is that one day, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will return again and he will show the devil his rightful place along with all the sons of damnation. But for those who believe in Jesus and trust him and obey his word, there is eternal life. That is the promise to you and to me. Yeah. So maybe we can just ponder some of these things. I know this is a little heavy. Maybe we can ponder some of these things in our own hearts. Let's just make a time of silence. Let's ask God to speak to us in our spirit and say, God, which one of these areas would you, would you want me to grow in in this season? as an immediate action point? Is it that I need to have more partnerships outside of my friend's circle that I currently have? Is it that I need to give myself to prayer and fasting more? Do I need to change my heart posture about the people who are above us? Or is it time for me to participate?